Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Schaefer's Market Mashup. Sorry about last week, no episode, but I think I'm going to make it up to you this week. I have a very esteemed guest with me, Tony Batista from TastyTrade.com. Tony, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm glad I'm not following anybody so they can't show me up or anything like that last week. There you go. No, it's you're, you're the trailblazer here. How are you? How are things in Chicago? Doing well, doing well. Um, I'm in the suburbs of Chicago, so um, you know, it's been everything's been copacetic here, but the, the, the city's under a little bit of uh, unrest, so that's kind of been uh, you know a takedown for everybody's attitude. Yeah, I, I feel like that's you know it's going to be like that for a while. Just kind of got to hunker down. I guess let's just get started about you and, and your background. Um, tell me about how you got into investing, what sparked your interest in Wall Street, and then we can move that on to your current role at Tasty Trade. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I don't think my um, my story is much different from many guys who became market makers on the floor of the CBOE. I mean, mine started in, in New York uh, in 1980. Uh, I left Brooklyn, New York, because, um, you know, they say uh, in New York, there's no um, climbing of the social ladder. You know, if, you're, if your father's a bricklayer, you become a bricklayer. If your father's a doctor, you become a, a doctor. And if your father's a hoodlum, you know, you become a hoodlum. You know, my father wasn't uh, a, a doctor or, 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 or any other profession. So for me, it was, you know, leave New York and make a better, better name for myself or... Um, stay there and, and, you know, get a job uh, like the rest of the kids, you know, um, in, in the city. You know, it was more like a, a city job, you know, become a police officer or, or, a, or a garbage man or something like that. In the 1980s, which is probably before you were born, is that true? 89. So. 89, that's what I figured. In 1980, believe it or not, New York was going bankrupt. Um, they weren't uh, picking up any of the garbage on the streets. Uh, it was really a, a weird time in New York and the infrastructure was was crumbling. So I left New York with about 300 bucks in my pocket, came out to Chicago, drove my mom's uh, car to Chicago and got a job. Uh, had a cousin who was uh, um, a manager for Shearson Lehman Brothers. And he got me a job at the market maker house called Brant and Associates. And I became a runner, you know, one of those, those kids uh, that are 20, 21 years old, you see, you know, on, on the floors, bringing pieces of paper to uh, all the market makers and the brokers out in the pits. And uh, that's how I started to learn. I just watched other people and took copious notes, you know, uh, and, and said, you know, someday I, you know, I want to be, I want to be like them. And it took me about three years uh, of saving money every day. I started trading with $5,000 in my account in 1983. I was just about six months after my 21st birthday. Um, I've been making money ever since. I've only traded for myself. I've only traded my own money. So any money I got to, to make, I kept. And any money I lost, I, I had to give back. Um, you, know, you can't start anymore as a market maker on the floor of the CBOE with $5,000. You know, now you may need half a million dollars. But in 1983, um, it was possible. Yeah, that's truly you know, a starting from a bottom story there. 
And yeah, a lot of guys, a lot of guys, you know, remember the Chicago Board Options Exchange um, was started, I believe, in 79 or 77 options were first um, introduced to the market. And it was um, it was an open playing field because they didn't have any legacy. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like the Board of Trade that had already been almost 100 years old. You right. know, it wasn't like the New York Stock Exchange that had been a couple of hundred years old. Um, you know, seats on the New York Stock Exchange were, you know, a million dollars at the time. You know, a seat on the floor of the CBOE was, you know, maybe $175,000. Not that I can afford $175,000, but you can rent them. Um, and I would rent them sometimes weekly. You know, um, I'd rent them for $3,000 a week. Um, so that means I had to make $3,000 just to break even that week before I paid my clerk or, wow. or any other expenses I had. So it wasn't like it was a cheap point of entry but it was way cheaper than if i stayed in new york or tried to go to the board of trade yeah it's not, the context there is important you know the the, yeah. the point I mean, of entry, entry just like anything else yeah did you see you know, i'll give you kind of a chance to pat yourself on the back there did you see this vast potential when you were going over there or were you just kind of giving it a shot in any which way did you um, did you see what it would become really in the next 20 to 30 years no, I didn't have um, I didn't have that kind of outlook. I just remembered, um, you know, so you're standing on the pit with you know forty or fifty other guys, and you're you know a, a young kid of you know when I first moved out there, I was almost eighteen years old. So you're mm-hmm. 18, 19 years old, and you're with you know mostly guys who are you know thirty to to, to sixty years old, um, and and they kind of take a liking to you. You know, they think of you as like you know you know, their own kid who might be in college or, or something like that. And they, you know, you, you, you forge a friendship. If you have any kind of um, uh, good attitude towards you, you know, here's somebody who drives a fancy car. You think they live in a fancy house. Uh, maybe they can, maybe they can teach you something. And that's really what, what I did. And um, I befriended a lot of the, of the traders there. And back in the day before email, remember this is before email, before microwaves or anything else. Um, People used to on Friday, you would you would get what we called our sheets. If you were a market maker, all the trades you made on Friday would would come out on a printout. You'd get like twenty or thirty pages of these thousands of trades that you made, and then you would go over them, um, you know, line by line to make sure you had the right quantity, the right strike price, the right person was trading with you, um, and you would do that Monday through Thursday because you were coming in to work the following day. But on Friday, you could come in on Saturday or Sunday and pick up those sheets, and then you could do them at home on your leisure. And, you know, maybe on Monday, you can come in a little bit later or or closer to the market opening. So I found a small little business niche, and and I said to the the guys who lived out in the suburbs, you know, if you pay me 20 bucks, I'll go in in the morning on Saturday morning at 6 o'clock in the morning, and I'll deliver your sheets to you. You remember there was really no FedEx or yeah. or anything like that that was you know going to do it as cheap as I was going to do it. And I said I would deliver your sheets to you, and you can have them before noontime. And if you lived in the city, I would I would deliver them for ten bucks. So when I first came to Chicago, I was making about six hundred bucks a month before taxes, and my delivery service was making me about four hundred dollars a weekend, uh, cash money and I got to meet all the guys. So I get to, you know, go to their houses and, you know, see how they live. And I had never heard of, you know, suburbs like Plenko and Winnetka and Kenilworth where there were just these 
beautiful mansions. And it seemed like, you know, every other house was a, was a trader. So I said, shit, I want to be a trader. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty easy. It, and that's a great way that you can build up your networking too, is, is really yep. just kind of just be a sponge around these people who have all these years and years of experience. As an options trader, what have, did you learn and have you learned that you can employ in like a macro environment like now where you have volatility that's seemingly around every corner? I think that the biggest takeaway I got from the market makers on the floor of the CBOE was um, the opposite of what everybody else thinks. You know, um, market makers want every person who makes a trade with them, that's every customer that makes a trade with them, to be profitable. Now, most people will say that market makers don't want the customer to be profitable. They're trying to rip them off. But think about the business model. If the customer doesn't come back, the market maker can't make his money. Like we're making money on the bid ask. Mm -hmm. So if you're not profitable as a customer, you may do it once, twice, or three times, but after that you're done. So our job was to make a fair and equitable market. Now today it's completely different. You know, your cost to entry, which I talked about, you know, the reason why I left Chicago, why I left New York to come to Chicago was cost of entry. You know, now base, trading is basically free. I mean, you could trade stock for free. It's not efficient use of your capital, but you could trade stock for free. Um, there's no uh, monthly fee to uh, trade on a trading platform. Um, you have access to multiple exchanges. Um, when I left the floor of the CBOE in 2005, my monthly nut was about twelve dollars to $14,000 a month before I made my first trade. You know, today it's basically zero to get into the into the market with any type of online trading platform. So the things that that kind of scared me before volatility expanding because my positions were so large as a market maker are actually the things I embrace as a retail investor. To me volatility is the key to trading. Now, not since March. Since March yeah. the key to trading is just buying the stonks or just getting long. Ooh, I'm sorry, did you say stonks there? Stonks, yeah. Yes. I have, I have a 30-year-old son, and he told me they're no longer stocks, they're stonks. Yeah, and I wish I could pop up the picture of the person, because the picture of the person is the funniest part, where it's just this blank mannequin. Have you seen that? I didn't that? know that, so I learned something yeah. new today, too. But you know what? I mean, listen, this is... Um, listen, I remember... Um, I remember I, listen, I was, a, I was a market maker through the 1987 crash, um, I actually bought my seat on the CBOE the day of the crash. Um, I was there for the dot-com uh, bubble uh, of, of 2000, 99, 2000. I was there for the flash crash. I mean, you know, unusual markets, and I think we have a very unusual market today, are, are going to come and go. But normally what you really need to do and what you really need to learn are the strategies. The strategies are what's key, and volatility is always the key to those strategies. Okay, and I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think a lot of retail traders now view volatility as like this abstract concept where it's avoided and you just kind of almost like close your eyes and you know shove it under the rug or whatever. What does it mean to an options trader and how can they take advantage of implied or historical volatility, especially when choosing their options? Sure. I mean, listen, you know, I'm, I'm a retail investor just like you are, Patrick, and just like, you know, the people who are listening to, to, to this podcast or, or, or watching this video. I mean, 
To me, volatility um, is probably a retail investor's greatest tool. And I'll explain what, explain what I mean. We get to choose our advantage over the algos, our advantage over the market makers, our advantage over the machines is we get to do what we want to do. So if we get it to do what we want to do, the only thing we have to embrace is the strategy. Now there's two strategies. There's buying volatility and selling volatility. That's all there is. It's very, very simple. And if you're gonna buy volatility, you're usually doing something that requires it. In my world, I'm all about options. I primarily trade only options. I do do futures and futures options, but I'm not a stock trader. It takes way too much buying power for me. I'm not typically a uh, futures trader. It's too black and white for me. It's a 50% probability of success. For me, the strategy, if you're bullish on something and it has high implied volatility, that just means that the options are fat. Well, maybe buy an at the money put and sell two out of the money puts for a large credit. If you're uh, extremely neutral on a strategy, sell a strangle. If you're if you're bullish on a strategy, bullish on a stock that has high implied volatility, meaning the options are fat relative to themselves, sell a put that's closer to the money and sell a call that's further out of the money. The only way you can, in my opinion, know when volatility is expanding in an individual product is to have something like what we have on Tastyworks, which is IV rank. Other brokerage firms have it too. It's just implied volatility measured by itself to that product. Like right now, you've got forward slash VX, which is, which is the VIX future, which is the only product I will look at to tell me what volatility is doing. Forward slash VX is trading just about $25 today. I'll put up on the screen for you if you want me to. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, let me put up there. Hold on. Forward slash VX is, is $25. I'm rounding. It's $24.92 at the moment. You'll notice that there are no options on forward slash VX. So why would I say I would look at this? This is the volatility future. This is what VIX is priced off of. If you notice, VIX has options, but there's no bid ask on VIX. And if you notice on VI, on VIX, if you look at the uh, 21 or the 21 and a half straddle, remember something with option pricing. If something is at the money, the call and the put are basically going to be the same price. Mm -hmm. Look at this. The stock is 21.64, yet the 21 call is $4.30 and the 21 put is, is 40 cents. The same thing with the 22 call. It's $3.60 and the put is 75 cents. That doesn't make sense. It cannot be different prices. They have to be basically the same if there's no dividend and there's no dividend in VIX. So let's take a look at what VIX is really saying. This number is irrelevant to what VIX is. So it always makes me kind of laugh when you'll hear somebody on CNBC or even some you know educator, they'll say, you know, VIX, VIX is $21.65 because it means absolutely nothing. Remember, I told you it was trading around $25. Look at the 25 strike. The call and the put is exactly the same price. Oh, yeah. That's where volatility really is. It's at $25, not at $21.65. So what does that mean? Like, what does that mean to, to you as a trader if you're going to trade? Uh, I'll go into ExxonMobil to go into something mm -hmm. you know that's relatively lower priced. 
What does that mean? It really doesn't mean anything to you, to this stock. So how can I tell if this monthly implied volatility of some somewhere around 40, that's the monthly implied volatility on the right, mm-hmm. is high relative to itself? Well, the only thing I can do is look at IV rank. IV rank is this number. It goes from zero to 100. 22 is at the lower end. Mm-hmm. If I go to a chart, you can see that this bottom one, I have volatility here. This is the stock price. So if I told you ExxonMobil, high volatility or low volatility, the monthly implied volatility is somewhere around 40. If I said to you, well, SPY is going to have a monthly implied volatility somewhere in the 20s, like volatility forward slash VX is or BIX, you may say that ExxonMobil is high. It's almost double what the S&P is, but it's relatively low when you compare it to itself. So in me and ExxonMobil, if you told me, I don't care if you use technical analysis or you use fundamentals, you use gut, I don't care what it is, tea leaves, I, I don't use any of them, I just use volatility. But if you're gonna say to me, you know what, I'm bullish on this stock because it's gonna go into the Dow, or I'm bullish on this stock just because it hasn't participated in the market, or I'm bearish on this stock because it hasn't participated in the market, for me, I would be doing a debit spread and not selling premium because I'm not getting paid enough for the risk that I'm taking because volatility is low. High volatility. Yeah, that's very similar to how over at Schaefer's where we measure with our Schaefer's volatility index and we look at it on its basically annual percentile. You know, six of one, half dozen of another, a rose by any other name. You know, you have to have something, some metric that allows you to quantify whether volatility is high in this specific product. Mm -hmm. Because just saying volatility is high, again, you sound like CNBC. It's such a a broad base that doesn't mean anything. You know, buy Kazakhstan bonds. Like, you you can't trade those. Volatility is high. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything to me unless I can drill down into the individual product. And I feel like that can spook some people who are new to this and they just know the word volatility in, in layman's terms of like, oh, going up and down. Like, I don't want that. I want a nice, easy ride. Whereas, you know, like you said before, where like you have to think within a contrarian mindset that gives you the opportunity to kind of find these, you know, like fat trades. As, as retail investors, we can really only control one thing and that's entry. Mm-hmm. So if you control only, if you can really can only control one thing, entry, you got to have the right strategy on entry to be successful. Right. I think you said you had a 30-year-old son. I, too, am 30. Um, I started working at Schaefer's back in 2017, so my friends are relatively familiar with what I do now. And I've had some, even some just people that I don't even know, like through Facebook or Instagram, message me sure. saying like, okay, oh, you work in finance. Uh, you know, Can you help me out? How do I get started? What do you pick? What do you do your research? And I joke with them, especially my college friends. Look, man, I failed microeconomics at Center College the first first time I took it. Like I'm I'm still I'm learning with you. So you know I've got someone here who has spent you know his entire life with it. How what would you say to someone that came up? Because basically, if you were in the room with me, I would just pawn them off on you and say, here you got to talk to Tony. And and, and you know what. It's a difficult question to answer because a lot of times people don't want to uh, 
um, put the work into it. And I think that's actually the phenomenon that we're seeing in the in the markets today, where everything just goes, you know, in one direction. I think we're on the 16th or 17th day of the NASDAQ basically being being straight up without having to do any type of strategy. It really is, you know, buy something. It doesn't matter what it is. You can be buying straddles or strangles. You could be buying stock. You could be buying out-of-the-money options. It doesn't matter. The moves have been so great that I think this is going – this is for our business as, as people who are investing, as retail investors – what you're seeing today, whether you're benefiting from this, you know, huge bull market that we've had, you know, over the last 10 years or the last, you know, five or six months, if you've benefited from that or not, what you're going to look, what you're going to love moving forward is the amount of players that will be in the market. We are educating for better or worse, the biggest pool. I think that's the biggest phenomenon from Robinhood. They're, they're, they're bringing so many people to the market. And fortuitous enough for them, you know, they're actually going to be trading from the long side because that's all any new trader does mm -hmm. is let me buy an option for a dollar that's going to go to five dollars or let me buy a stock at fifty dollars that's going to go to sixty dollars. Nobody ever thinks about it in any other other fashion when they're a new trader. This has become probably the best catalyst for them to learn how to trade because eventually you're going to get a two sided market. And then strategies are, are, are going to be king. At this point, it's just throw a dart at something. How much are you willing to risk? And, you know, you go for it. Go big or go home, which I think is exactly the opposite of a longevity of trading. So just like back in 1983, and it sounds like a, a long time for me, you know, my mentors, the guys that, you know, showed me how to trade, always told me one thing. They always said, listen, Make as many trades as you can over a long period of time and not do everything all at once. And I think that's the opposite of what you're seeing right now in the market, but it's paying off for a lot of people. In a long-winded way of asking of how to answer your question, I would just tell everybody, listen, this is the greatest opportunity to learn about strategies, strategies with derivative products. It's the only way you can put on a high probability trade and have a long-term outlook on how to trade and how to make money. There's no way, nobody knows nothing. Meaning, there's nobody that knows what's gonna happen tomorrow. They can have an assumption, whether it be from past performance, or they can have assumption from what they read in the news. But no, nobody truly knows what's gonna happen. But we got derivative products that have penny-wide markets. That means it's basically pick them between buying them and selling them. Yep. All you have to do is know which strategy to use to fit your assumption. And I feel like your answer differs from most because it's not like you're uh, like poo-pooing people that are in in the market, in entering now in these retail traders that are kind of throwing these darts because that is the environment now. But at the same time, you are still cautioning of like do that, and at the same time, do your research and get ready for this next shoe to drop. It's a, it's a marathon. It's, yes. not, um, it's not a sprint. You know, nobody who is trading today, who is um, having a very successful career, if they've only been trading for the last year or something like that, is going to have the same kind of results three years or four years from now or three days from now. Eventually, over time, it's always a bell curve. 
Mm-hmm. You have to learn what you're doing. Ask anybody. Ask here. Go to a golf pro. Or go to a, a pro golfer. Don't practice your pro. What do you need to do? Why do you need to hit balls before you start? You know exactly how to hit them because you fine tune your strategies. Everybody who's a professional in their business practices. A runner will stretch. Why? They just ran a marathon. Why do they have to stretch? They're limber. Everybody practices. Everybody learns their craft. Everybody learns their strategies. And in the long run, in the marathon, that's what will keep you, your head above water in all market types. Yeah, that's outstanding. That also resonates with me because I am currently fixing my backswing right now after about a year overdue. Not, so if, you, if you're 30 and you can't fix it, it's not fixable. I'm sorry. I know. Well, that's what scares me. I've had to do some serious mental gymnastics to get, to get over, you know, getting a little too vertical. But that's neither here nor there. Um, I did want to get your thoughts because you know you love him or you hate him. You know he's making an impact and he's making noise regardless. You see the kind of the Davy Day trader craze mm-hmm. with uh, with Portnoy and Barstool. What are your thoughts on that? It, obviously not like do you like him or not, but more of like do you see that as impacting traders, retail traders' mindsets? Do you kind of wish there was a little more of an options angle going on there? Um, listen, more, more players for me, listen, liquidity, just like I was going back to the market maker wanted, uh, in the beginning of my story, market maker wanted every retail investor to make money because they wanted the liquidity. Mm-hmm. They wanted everybody back in the pool. I think what, what Portnoy is doing, I think is phenomenal for the business. I think he's piggybacking something that we have said for, for decades, not for, for, you know, a year, but for decades that, you know, nobody knows anything that, you know. CNBC or anybody else, MNSBC, anybody that you want to talk to um, doesn't know anything about the market tomorrow, especially one that doesn't have a position or one that um, has never traded before or a CEO that comes on to, uh, to a program and says, yeah, I really like my stock. We think our numbers are going to be, they can't say anything about it under, under law. They're not supposed to be able to, unless you're, you're Elon Musk, where you can say whatever you want. You're not supposed to be able to give non-public uh, uh, information in a public forum. So I think what Dave is doing is probably phenomenal for the business. I think he's exposing uh, you know, a lot of people to uh, investing in, their, in themselves. You can see that by the brokerage uh, stocks and the amount of accounts that are opening, not just from Dave, but I think because of the pandemic, a lot of people are being home. But I think he's actually good for the Now, do I think he's tongue-in-cheek? Yeah, I think he's tongue-in-cheek. I mean... Uh, do I watch him in his pizza videos? Yeah, I love him in his pizza vid- videos because my hometown pizza of L and B's Fimoni Gardens is in, is in the top ten, and I would agree with them. Well, he uh, he, he hit uh, Pepe's Pizzeria up in New Haven too. Pepe's is, was so. wonderful too. I've never been there personally, but I've had the pizza. Mm-hmm. It's very very good. Um, New Haven style, a little bit a little bit different. Yeah, than I like yeah, I like it a little crispier. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's great. Um, but I think Dave is, is, is bringing it to the masses, and I think, um, I think that's his biggest um, contribution. And I think he's – listen, if we can teach the public how to save 2 3 or 4% a year in management fees alone just by doing it themselves – I mean, heck, Patrick, if you want to mirror the S&P 500, just buy SPY. I mean – if you want to mirror the NASDAQ, just buy QQQ. Exactly. You get the dividends. You get everything. It's, if the S&P goes up you know, 30% this year or the NASDAQ goes up 30% this year, 
you'll make, you know, 29.8%. I mean, it's simple. I think that's what he's he's showing people. You don't need managers and, and you're saving people three, four, five percent, maybe seven percent on the front end that they'll never ever get back with a manager. So most managers don't beat the 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 benchmark that they're supposed to mirror. So why not just buy the benchmark that they're supposed to mirror? I think that's what he's showing people. Yeah. I also think he does a good job of creating this paradigm shift in the world of investing where he got into it because he's like, well, I can't gamble on sports anymore, so I'm going to yep. do this. And I yep. think for a lot of people that are looking to kind of dip their toe in, if you equate it to sports gambling, now obviously that's there's not, it's not a perfect but analogy. Should, but you should put it to if you if you like what he's doing, you should compare it to sports betting. So let's do that real quickly. Listen, you know they talk about Vegas uh, having those 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 big casinos, you know. They didn't build them with their money. They built it with, with your money, or yeah. my money, or our money, the, oh, yeah. the public money that lost, right? So they've got very wide markets. You typically can only take one side of, 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 a, of a trade because it's too big between the, the bid and the ask of the, of the buy and the sell, whether it's a box or a baseball game or a football game. They've kind of honed back on that a little bit, now allowing you, you know, to trade half times and, and trade quarters uh, but again, it's always a big fat margin, 10% to the house. You've got a market here that's one penny wide, that's pick them. If you exactly. love sports gambling, you'll love investing even more because it's not gambling, it's investing. Because it's a pick them market. Imagine if you said, you know, I'm a Chicago Bear fan. So if the Bears were, were a seven point favorite, meaning their volatility was very high, mm -hmm. I could buy them at, at zero, meaning like I can buy them without laying the seven points because of the strategy that I use. I put on a high probability trade, one that if the stock is trading at 100, my break even because I'm bullish is 98. If I can buy it lower than where it's trading, well, I don't know. It's a no-brainer to me. You can't do that in sports betting. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm glad that there's some connection forming with that and that's that's bringing people in and then especially you look at DraftKings and what they've been doing and, and what they plan on doing you know I've looked around at some of their options for say golf and the way that you can bet on that is almost the same way as an options trade that you do where you look and say I think on Saturday you know Colin Morikawa is going to lead his group. And I, I just think there's the more you kind of pair those two together, the more you can get people that are comfortable with using their money, and like you said, without this this lower risk of entry, and, and let them play around with it. 100%. 100%. The, the difference that I see with that is, is going to be liquidity. And, and let me explain. I'll make it very short. Mm -hmm. I think there's more notional value traded by retail investors in one day in the stock market than there is betting all year on DraftKings and Vegas combined. Wow. I mean, that's how, how big the market is. That's, yeah, that, that's context right there that you need. Um, really quickly, um, circling back to our current trading climate, you don't have to feel like you can give as much as you want here. What are you keeping an eye on as far as particular sectors, stocks, trends, anything have your attention, or do you take it more 
day by day every time you wake up and sort of kind of react to whatever comes across your desk? Well, well, I mean, I think, you know, I think that that's a pretty easy question to, to answer. I think everybody's eyes are, are on the NASDAQ. This is just a one-year uh, chart of the NASDAQ. And, you know, you can see what, you know, the NASDAQ's up by like 30% or something mm-hmm. like that. When you compare it to the, to the E-mini S&Ps, the chart might look the same, but the velocity of the move is not the same. E-mini S&Ps actually just made uh, new highs today and today. a few days ago. And if you look at the Russell... Uh, Russell, it'd be easier if I go to IWM for you to see. Yeah. Um, if you look at IWM, you know it hasn't made new, new highs. So yes, a rising tide might lift all ships. But to take it to your point, what you do at Schaefer, and you know what I try to do in my own account is you try to find you know those stocks that are uh, going to outperform if you're bullish to the upside and underperform to the downside and. You know, this has really been a stock picker's market. I think if your audience really looked at like 401ks that they may have no um, uh, way to kind of trade, they'd be very, very surprised to look at their yearly return um, and see what it matches. Maybe they're up 3 4 5%. Maybe they're unchanged. Uh, maybe they got lucky and they were a little bit heavy in the NASDAQ and they're up 10 or 15%. But they took the same amount of risk and only made 15% when they should have taken the same amount of risk and made 30% by being the NASDAQ themselves. Right. You, you had more skin in the game. Um, okay. Well, you, you did mention this before. I mean, the individual stocks to, to look at, if you're, you know, it's, it's going to be the, the top 10. They're all in the NASDAQ. We all know who they are. The Teslas, the Netflix, the, the Facebooks, obviously the, the, the Apple Throw in a Zoom if you if you want to if you want to throw in a Zoom and Nvidia, Microsoft. I mean, if you look at the broad based market, even in the Nasdaq, I think the broad based market is basically unchanged, mm-hmm. which means those seven or eight or ten stocks that I just named are outperforming so much to lift the whole Nasdaq and even the S and P um, to to new heights. So, if those fall, so will the market, unless you believe that the other. Uh, 490 are going to lift up the, the S&P 500. Yeah, I mean, I think they're really propping them up. And bonds would be your other key. Bonds are finally starting to get a little bit soft. Forward slash ZB is trading uh, just under 176. If that goes under 170 or so, volatility starts uh, creeping up in conjunction with that. Uh, inflation starts rearing its head. Um, you may see a little bit of a shift from some of these high flyers. Into more kind of um, regular or more normal type of uh, asset allocations that will put a little bit of a damper on the market. Would you consider that like a conservative asset allocation, or you know, I hate conservative and 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 aggressive because you know, just like if they say on CNBC, you know, I don't have a position in this stock, but this stock looks amazing. It's the best stock I've ever seen, but they don't have a position in it. You know. Mm-hmm. If you're, if you're thinking about allocation, you're probably not seeing the full picture. Like if, if, um, if I told you, you know, a conservative allocation would be have 20% in XYZ, but you're not bullish in XYZ, why? Yeah. You, you know what I mean? What's like your, what's your angle? Cash, yeah. cash could be a position. Or overweight on one side that, that you like. Or, or overweight on one side that you hate. Yeah, I see. What, I see what you're saying. 
it, it does take kind of a shift I like in that risk. mindset. I, I mean, I take risk. I mm-hmm. think you, I think you have to have, I think you have to have risk. I think most people, you know, your age, my son's age, and younger are risk adverse. Um, and I think if Dave has taught anybody, uh, taught anybody anything, or if this market has taught anybody anything, um, it's how to take risk. And I think that's probably the biggest takeaway from 2020 is, is whether you walk outside um, during the <laughs> pandemic, you know, uh, with a risk reward of a mask or no mask or whatever your feelings might be on that, you're learning about risk. And I think that's a healthy thing. Right. Well said. Well said. We'll close with some quick lightning rounds here. You've got the New York, you've got the Chicago. Why is Chicago style pizza so inferior to the East Coast? <laughs> well, I don't get it. It's it's not pizza. You you caught me you caught me at a you caught me at a bad time, and, I, and I'll tell you why. Um, I'm 58 years old, so I'm not as um, I'm not as confrontational as I used to be. Um, if you caught me about 15 years ago, I would agree with you 100. percent New York style pizza, New Haven pizza is the pizza I grew up on, and I think it's the it's the best. Chicago deep dish pizza probably shouldn't be called pizza, but it has its place. It's a really good pie. It really is. It's amazing. My friends um, yesterday said that they had picked up a Lou's pizza. Does that ring any bell? Oh, which one? A Lou's pizza. I think Lou that's... Malnati's. Yes, yes. Yes, Lou Malnati's is the best chain deep dish pizza chain. Like, you know, there's many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's Chicago. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like you're right. I, I, it's not like I don't like it, but if I say I want pizza, I'm being very specific about my type. Like if I, it's, Lou Malnati's makes an excellent thin crust. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Oh, there's um much like your New Haven, a little bit of a butter crust on the bottom. Uh, it's very nice. Yeah, and I've um, I've taken to Detroit style pizza. Uh, my mom's from Michigan, and, and there's a D- Detroit joint uh, up here oh, in Cincinnati. Oh, I'm gonna tell you something right now, Patrick. It's only a small like step over the line if you're going to Detroit pizza, which is a little bit thicker, like a Sicilian pizza. Uh-huh. A pizza looks. I sound like a New Yorker. Yeah. Pizza. <laughs> <laughs> it's my it's my New Yorker coming at me. If you go to a a, a Detroit style pizza to a Chicago pan or deep dish pizza, man, there's no stopping it, you now. It's a slippery slope. Yeah, I'm gonna know. I'm gonna talk to you in ten years, and I'm gonna be fully converted. You know, we talked about golf a little bit. I'm not sure if you're aware, but um, Olympia Fields is the home of the BMW Championship this week. Um, that is a little, just a little out of my price range. Uh, give me a couple good Muni courses or some spots in Chicago if I was ever coming through and looking to get 18 in. <sighs> Um, you're, you're, you're hitting on it. You're hitting on a soft spot for me because, um, we would always play Cod Hill, which is, uh, a, a public course, uh, a little bit more on the, you know, a little more on the expensive side, although a lot, a lot, a lot has changed, uh, with the pandemic. Cod Hill, Seven Bridges, um, would be probably the two that I would, that I would, that I would throw out there to you. All right. Good to know. Good to know. And of course, obviously, since this is your your uh, you know, your show here, you want to plug anything over going on at Tasty Trade? What, what do you guys got going on? Thank you. If you if you enjoyed this this talk and, and you want to learn more, um, TastyTrade.com is one hundred percent free. You can go through all our archives. We do a live show 
uh, basically from 7 o'clock in the morning till 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Central Standard Time, um, where we make trades all day long and talk about the markets. Um, you know, it doesn't matter to me whether you agree with me or disagree with me. As long as you do something, I just want you to be engaged. Um, I would love if I could plug Tasty Works, uh, tastyworks.com, uh, brought to you by the, the people who created Thinkorswim, Tom Sasnoff, uh, Scott Sheridan, Christy Ross, uh, Woody Ma, uh, myself in, in some small way. Um, if you can go to tastyworks.com and check out our trading platform, it would be awesome. Um, if not, that's okay too, but do it yourself. Take the money into your own hands. Nobody cares about your money more than you. Outstanding. Yeah, I, I can vouch for that. I, I've hopped around the site a couple times. It's it's different than most, and that's 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 a very, very good thing. We challenge people to, to you know, be, uh, customers are really smart, mm-hmm. and we've always thought, or the, 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 the public, uh, or the, the mainstream media has always thought the public is dumb. Public's not dumb. There are some really bright people out there. And listen, if you can amass a fortune, whatever that may be, you know, one person's floor is another person's ceiling, whether it's $1,000 or $100,000 or $100 million, you can amass that kind of money. You certainly can learn this business. It's not that difficult. Absolutely. Absolutely. Take it from someone who failed microeconomics. We just mentioned that <laughs> one last time. You didn't go to college. Yeah, there you go. Um, Tony, I can't thank you enough. This was one of the f- best conversations I've ever had with, with someone in the finance world. Uh, thank you so much for hopping on. Hopefully, maybe we can you know link up again another time. Uh, stay safe. Go Bears. I guess yeah, I've got I've got no problem with the Bears. I'm I'm happy with with Joe Burrow. So I'd be um, happy if there's games. That's yes, all I want. exactly, exactly. Uh, but again, can't thank you enough. Thank you, man. Thanks, Appreciate Tony. It, Patrick. Appreciate it. Let me talk to you audience. Yep. <laughs>